0: To Matthew chapter 1, or an exciting passage of Scripture in the genealogies. I have never, to my knowledge, preached a message on the genealogies of Christ. And I say that plural because Matthew gives us one and Luke also gives us one. Uh, But I'm not being facetious when I say exciting. Uh, These happen to be passages that uh, many people tend to gloss over to get to the real meat. You know, this is just the stuff they say at the beginning, and now we're going to dive in. Uh, One uh, author even uh, said that uh, had they had the convention of footnotes in the first century, um, Matthew and Luke might have put these in the footnotes. Um, I beg to differ. I think uh, both of them had a purpose for giving us the records that they did. And I want us to take a look at those this morning. And by the way, if you uh, didn't find the study guide, uh, that's because there isn't one. So don't worry about that. Uh, it's Christmas week. Uh, please take notes if you like. Um, but uh, groups are typically not meeting this week and... Um, I spent a few days uh, in bed trying to get rid of a fever and an infection, and so uh, things happen, you know, but uh, anyway, praise God, I'm just, uh, I marvel at his uh, goodness and grace to us, uh, and and how faithful he is. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of... Of Abraham. Now, I want us to note just at the outset that Matthew does have a plan. He has a purpose. He wants to connect Jesus. And remember that Matthew is writing his gospel predominantly to a Jewish audience. And he wants to connect Jesus in a way that they will recognize his significance. And so he points out that in the line of Jesus, he is the son of David, the king uh, and prophet and the son of Abraham, the high priest of the Jewish heritage and family, that he is related uh, by pedigree to the great Jewish heroes of the faith, the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon and Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon, by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. And Ammon, the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Babylon. After the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shelteel, and Shelteel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihu, and Abihu the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad. Eliad was the father of Eleazar. Eliezer, the father of Matthan, and Matthan, the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are fourteen generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Now, I'm not going to go to Luke's genealogy just at this moment, but I want to back up and I want to talk a little bit about Matthew's genealogy and some of his motivation that we might find in there. You know, divine inspiration is a mystery. It is a fact, but it is a mysterious fact. We don't know exactly how it is that the Holy Spirit uh, motivated the writers of Scripture to write what they wrote. Uh, did he give them ideas? Um, did he um, put uh, thoughts in their mind and and prompt them to to write them down? Did he use their personalities? Uh, he certainly used their vocabulary because we find a difference in vocabulary between some of the different writers. And so when I think about Matthew and some of his motivation for writing, there's no doubt in my mind, uh, as there isn't about any of the Scripture, in case any of you are wondering, uh, about the divine inspiration. It is all the Word of God. But he comes upon and motivates those writers in, in ways that we perhaps will never fully comprehend. And I wonder what was going on in Matthew's heart and mind as he recounted the genealogy of Jesus to establish his pedigree, his lineage, for the Jewish people to recognize that he had a right to the throne of David, that he was Messiah, and that he fulfilled all the criteria of prophet, priest, and king. But in doing so, Matthew did some peculiar things. For one thing, he included four women, five if we count Mary herself. Women were typically not included in the genealogies. The men were included. And when we go to look at Luke, we find that Luke does not include any women in his genealogy. But Matthew uh, wants to introduce these women along with uh, the men in the sequence of the line of Christ for some specific reasons. And I wonder if one of those reasons was not the fact that Matthew himself was a publican. He was an outcast. He was someone, because of his profession and history as a tax collector, had been rejected by his own people. They had treated him as anathema. And by virtue of his office, they hated him. And so, Matthew yet finds himself chosen of Jesus Christ to be one of the twelve apostles and to be in that inner circle of disciples whom Jesus devoted uh, the bulk of, of his time. I think Matthew, looking back over the history of Jesus, must have thought about that. And he thought about the checkered past of so many of the people that fit into the line of Christ. And as he thought about that, and I'm not blaming the women here, by the way, because the men were participants in the in the process... But he brings to our mind certain women who factored significantly in the lineage of Jesus Christ, even though they themselves would have been considered outcast and rejected by the Jewish people. It's one of those kinds of things, you know, where you can't deny the history, but you'd prefer not to bring it all up. Uh, and you just kind of sort of hope it goes away a little bit, you know, and if you don't mention it, uh, maybe people won't make too much of it. And that's another very interesting and unique thing about Scripture, is God pulls no punches, and He doesn't try to hide a bunch of stuff uh, and bury it, uh, you know. He's not afraid the press is going to get a hold of it. Uh, God puts it all out there for us to see, because it is what it is. Matthew tells us uh, in his genealogy there are three sequences of 14 generations. The first one from Abraham to David, and then from David to the deportation to Babylon, and then from the deportation to Babylon to Messiah. Three segments of Jewish history. And if you were to try to graph these segments... Uh, according to the spiritual, um, what shall I say? The spiritual passion, the spiritual health, the the general uh, well-being of the nation. You might begin with Abraham, who was the the founder of the Jewish race, and you might see that line going upward and climbing rather steadily. Uh, albeit with some uh, little dips here and there, but moving toward the Davidic kingdom, which is a crowning mark in Israel's history. Israel always looks back to David as the greatest king that ever sat on the throne of Israel. Uh, Saul is essentially discounted, and, and David is hailed as the greatest king that ever sat on the throne. But after David, there's a sudden turn and the mood and the spiritual health of Israel. And it begins to decline until finally, as it progresses from bad to worse, God brings judgment upon the nation. And they go into captivity into Babylon. And if you see that first part of the graph, the first two-thirds, as being kind of like a mountain peak, uh, the last third is more or less a level line. There's no thriving, there's no life, uh, they've sunk to mediocrity, and at the very best, they're just kind of hanging on. That was one of the things that made their yearning for the appearance of Messiah so desperate. They knew that unless God somehow intervened in their history, that they were doomed. They were not going to experience uh, the, the, the splendor and glory of their past unless God made some kind of difference. And so Matthew tells this story that includes the rise and then the demise and then finally uh, the mediocre plateauing of a nation that is just sort of existing by the time Jesus appears on the scene. But the other thing that Matthew does is he includes... a a group of people, and they're in the line of Christ, that if we go back and study them, we find some things in there that are very disturbing. Abraham was a great man of faith and a great believer. But we find that even Abraham had his weak moments, Even though they were advanced in years and and, uh, Sarah, uh, his wife, was advanced in years, she was a very beautiful woman. And um, uh, she had maintained her youthful looks and characteristics uh, well into her older years. She looked a lot younger than she was. And so we find Abraham, on occasion, fearing that some other... uh, king or ruler is going to kill him and take his wife and so uh they concoct this story that uh she uh, she can play the role of a relative or a sister uh because there's some uh, weird genealogical connection in their history that kind of makes her distantly related but Abraham out of fear is trying to to hide that reality rather than trusting God, that this woman is indeed his wife. Isaac kind of shows up on the scene as a son of promise, but there's nothing uh, particularly um, amazing that stands out about Isaac. Perhaps that's to his credit. There's nothing amazingly good or amazingly bad. Uh, he's just there between Abraham and Jacob. But uh, boy, Jacob, <laughs> he's another story. Jacob is a rascal. Uh, God has promised him uh, the, the, the birthright and the inheritance that is going to uh, lead to the future of the family and the Abrahamic line for the nation of Israel. But, oh boy, Jacob uh, wasn't content to let God work it out. Uh, he deceived his dad. He deceived his brother. He ended up having to run from his family to a distant land where he stayed for several decades because he was afraid to go back, that his brother was going to kill him because he had uh, really, really pulled the wool over their eyes, almost literally, uh, dressing in animal skins and trying to smell and feel like his ruddy brother, the, the hunter, you know. And uh, so he um, he did everything he could. To swindle and and connive and cheat and and somehow or another by hook or by crook uh, to to gain what he was after, and poor Judah, all the all the while God was willing to give it to him. Uh, I, I wish I could tell you the the amazing way that God met him uh, and changed his name to Israel, but uh, there's a story uh, there, and then. Uh, Jacob became the father of Judah, and Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, this is another uh, kind of bizarre story. This is, this is almost, the, well, it is the stuff of soap operas. It's just weird. Um, the custom was that if you died childless, um, if your husband died and you were childless, one of his brothers was to take his place because a widow that was left alone had no means of support. And um, because she had already been married, she was kind of worthless for anybody else. No, nobody else wanted her uh, on the open market. And so uh, women didn't fare so well in that situation. And so the law was rather compassionate by saying that um, a brother to the husband would take uh, this woman into his home make her his wife, and uh, raise children to his brother's name so that uh, she would have children and that there would be those that could care for her and that his, the name of his brother would go on. But uh, when uh, Tamar's husband, Er, you can always remember him, he erred greatly more than once, uh, and he was so wicked that the scripture says God actually killed him. He just took him out um, and, uh, before he could have any children. And his next brother in line was a little guy. you know. And Tamar is left a widow with, uh, with no one to take care of her. But um, Judah makes a promise. He says, Tamar, go back and live with your folks. And um, when this uh, little brother of Ur's gets old enough... Uh, to marry, then I will give him to you in marriage and he can raise up children uh, in his brother's name and that will take care of you and take care of the family. Well, Judah really didn't want much to do with Tamar and after she went back to uh, mom and dad's, the little guy grew up and Judah didn't fulfill his promise. Well, eventually Judah's wife died. And now he's kind of lonely. And he's heading out uh, to the time of the sheep shearing. And uh, he happens to go by the way and finds a prostitute on the roadside. She's all covered up, but they didn't dress like they do now. um, She's all covered up and she's disguised, but she's obviously uh, uh, looking like a temple prostitute. And uh, we won't go into all the sordid details, but Judah says here's an opportunity. So he makes arrangements with her, and uh, she says, what will you give me? And um, he says, well, I'll, I'll, give you a, I'll give you a lamb, a sheep. And, and she says, well, um, how will I know that you're going to do this? Um, well, I don't know. What do you want? And she says, well, let me have your signet ring and your staff as a pledge. Ah, there's something cooking here, because that was like saying, could I have your driver's license and your passport? And because um, that's the ID, you know, and so Judah says, well, OK, and I'll send one of my servants back and, and settle this deal up. So um, they do the deed and he moves on and he leaves his signet ring and uh, his staff. Well, lo and behold, he sends his servant back the next day. And guess what? There's no temple prostitute. And they start asking around, what are you talking about? There never has been a temple prostitute. What's wrong with you? And Judah's saying, oh, man, I have played the fool. Um, Don't tell anybody about this. This is his his word to his servants. Don't tell anybody about this. I already look stupid enough. I don't want to look any dumber. Just let this one go. And so about three months later, the word gets out. Your daughter-in-law is pregnant. And Judah says, bring her out here and let's burn her. She has no right to play the harlot. Ah. And so Tamar is brought out of the house. This still happens in that part of the world, by the way. She's brought out of the house. They're going to burn her alive. And she says, wait, wait, hold it. Just a second. Uh, It's true, I'm pregnant. But the, the father of my child owns this staff and this ring. Whose is it? And Judah has this awful sinking feeling. Oh no, I've been found out. And so in a, in a moment of a stark revival for him, he says, you are more righteous than I because I would not give you my son. You have done this thing and I have played into your hands and you are more righteous and I have defrauded you, and I, I will own this situation. And to his credit, the Scripture says, uh, he accepted her, and he accepted the child. He had no more physical relations with her f- at that point on. And he honored that situation. But we, we begin to see a story emerge of people who were broken people. They were a mess. Their lives were a shambles. Uh, We could go on and talk about the fact that Ruth, although she was a, a very godly and honorable woman, she came from the Moabites, who were arch enemies of Israel. And what in the world... Uh, Her husband was doing, going over to the Moabites to get married, is is just hard to fathom. We don't know that. But um, we do recognize that um, she was willing to go uh, with her mother-in-law back to the land of Israel and back to Bethlehem and to serve and follow the God of her husband who had died and to uh, honor the God of Israel as her God. And she demonstrated great faith. But she comes from the Moabite clan. But it's into the city of Bethlehem that she comes. And she meets Boaz. And Boaz and and Ruth, um, father Obed, uh, or parent Obed. And Obed has Jesse. And Jesse becomes the father of David. And so throughout this story, uh, which uh, I I won't go into a lot more great detail, we find the history filled with people who are broken people. Last week, if you look in verse 9, we studied the story of Ahaz, the most wicked king in all of Judah followed by Hezekiah, one of the most godly, followed by Manasseh, who just flipped the the, the direction again. Uh, and, and you look at the history of these kings, and yet they're in the line of Christ. These broken people full of sin and full of shame and and, and full of willfulness and trickery and their lives are checkered even David the great king you you know his story Uh, and even though he was a man after God's own heart he not only became an adulterer but he became a murderer to cover up his sin and swept it all under the rug but it leaked out in other ways within his family throughout uh, the rest of his lifetime as king. And here is this past in the line of Christ. I think Matthew wants us to know two things. He wants us to know that in the legal sense, Jesus is the rightful heir and fulfills all the criteria Of Messiah in the human sense he comes at the end of a long list of broken damaged people outcast and and sinful people who have gone their own way and have left the lineage of Christ dotted with deeds of shame and of embarrassment to the history of Israel. Notice that he says in the end of his genealogy, verse 16, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born. And in every sense of the legal word, Joseph was the legal father of Jesus, and Mary was the surrogate mother of jesus and From all outward appearances, Jesus was born into this couple's home. but there is a significant um, disconnect between the literal A human lineage of Mary and Joseph and that of Jesus. I'd like you to look over uh, into Luke for a moment. Chapter 3, verse 23. Luke chapter 3, verse 23. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. All throughout Jesus' life, that error was made. He was, as assumed, the son of Joseph. But in fact... He was not. In fact, as we, if we were to go back to Matthew, and we're not going to do that right at this moment, but if we were to go back to Matthew, we would find that he was also not literally the son of Mary. He was born to Mary. He uh, developed in her womb. But the scripture says, that which is in you is out from the Holy Spirit there is no question that the Holy Spirit of God implanted in the womb of Mary the body of Christ as He developed gestationally. He was the new creation of God, the second Adam. And He was planted uh, in the womb of Mary uh, to to grow inside of her and to be born to her uh, the virgin who became with child according to the scripture by the power of the Holy Spirit the interesting thing about the genealogy of Jesus according to Luke is that Luke not only uh, takes him back through Joseph but Luke traces his lineage all the way back let's pick up the thread in verse 37 Lamech the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Luke goes beyond Abraham. Luke has as his focus in the Gospel presenting Jesus as the Son of Man and the Savior of the world. And unlike Matthew, whose uh, objective is to present Him as the rightful Messiah of Israel, Luke desires to show Him as the Savior of the whole world. And the fact that, that He has Connection, all the way back to Adam as a member of the human race that he belongs uh, to that lineage from Adam that encompasses everyone, not just Abraham's line, but all the lines of human being, all the lines of men and women throughout history are somehow connected in Jesus Christ as the one who has come to be our Redeemer, I think there's a significant reason why Luke wants to take us back all the way to Adam. Because the Scripture teaches, and maybe we'll jump ahead to this for just a moment. Uh, the Scripture teaches in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 42, 1 Corinthians 15, 42... So also is the resurrection of the dead. Our bodies are sown a perishable body. They're raised imperishable. They're sown in dishonor. They're raised in glory. They're sown in weakness. They're raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. John put it this way in the introduction to his gospel. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own things, but those who were his own people did not receive him. But as many as received him... To them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Here's what I want us to see this morning. And here's what I want you to take with you. beginning with Adam and that sorry affair in the garden that plunged the whole human race into a whole history of those sordid stories that we read about both inside and outside the line of Christ. In that sorry overview of human history, of sin and loss and damage and shame and brokenness. There was born a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And at His birth, a new lineage began. He started a new race. He is the firstborn of a new creation. And as many as receive Him, to them He gives the right to be the children of God. If we were to look at the lineage of Christ today and attempt to complete it, we would see a vastly different story. Leading up to His birth, one person after another demonstrates their human weakness and frailty and failure. Even the best of them falling on their faces and making messes until Jesus. And then He starts with the most motley crew Tax collectors, rabble rousers, fishermen, all kinds of people that he says, Come follow me. Come follow me. I will enable you to be born all over again. I'll give you a new beginning. And he takes what is broken and damaged goods and he begins to put it together in a way that restores beauty and glory and victory and an amazing life. Look at loud mouth Peter ultimately proved to be a coward for all of his fist-shaking and bold boasting. But on the day of Pentecost, standing fearlessly as a man filled with the Spirit, and preaching with such anointing that 3,000 souls are converted, and going on to be the man who blazed the trail to the Samaritans after the gospel had been taken there he and John went to pray for them to receive the holy spirit and after that he blazed the trail to Cornelius household and carried the gospel and 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 uh, breached the wall to the gentiles Peter who followed his lord to the end and tradition tells us that coward on the night of the arrest asked to be crucified upside down as a penalty for being a follower of Christ because he was not worthy to die in the manner of his Lord. You look at the Apostle Paul who, breathing threats and the intention of doing everything he could to destroy uh, every single follower of Jesus Christ, is arrested on the road to Damascus and he sees the light unmistakably clear. And his life is transformed to become the greatest missionary apostle of the Roman Empire. And you can look down through history and you can see the story of person after person who has blazed that same trail by the transforming power of God to be something entirely different. God takes broken uh, humanity, He takes our sin, He takes our mess. And He cleanses and forgives and and He gives us the ability to be born anew and in a new birth to be indwelt with His Spirit and to rise up as men and women of God to begin to show forth His glory and His victory. He has empowered us by His Spirit to triumph over sin, to break the habits of the past. This is a a new race. This is a new beginning. This is a new line. Jesus is that pivotal point, that, that moment in history where the downward spiral can stop. And the upward climb and redemption can begin that will lead us from glory to glory as we embrace Him and behold Him in the future as the King of kings and Lord of lords and reign with Him forevermore in His presence. This is a new beginning. It's a new birth. As many as received Him, to them He gave the right, the authority to be children of God. Do you know that this morning? Do you know who you are? Do you know that Jesus Christ is living in you? Do you know the power of His Holy Spirit? If any man is in Christ, he is a brand new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. We have been changed by the power of God. I want to encourage you this morning. Don't live in that past history of Adam live in the freedom of Jesus Christ if the son will set you free you're free you can cast off the bondage of sin you can walk in victory you can experience the glory of God you can manifest his life and his light and his love and his power Those genealogies are there for a very important reason. Jesus has every right, legal right, to be the king of Israel, the Messiah, the Redeemer, the prophet, priest, and king. Also, tracing back to Adam, he has every right to be the Savior of the world. And yet, he offers us Through his life giving spirit, an opportunity to break the bondage and the chains of the past and to be resurrected to a brand new life with a brand new history. We can be changed. We can be different. We can be healed. We can be whole. We can be redeemed. We can be new and fresh and alive in Christ. You celebrate that this morning? Do you know who you are? You're born again. You've had a second birth. You're alive in Him. You're a part of a whole new lineage. What a glorious day that's going to be when all our brothers and sisters get together. We sit around that marriage feast table. With every tribe and tongue and nation, and we look at all the redeemed of all of history, and we see that He has plucked from the sons of Adam and the daughters of Adam a remnant to be restored to His likeness. The last Adam. Father, thank You for giving us the details Thank you for making us to realize the beauty and glory of our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray this morning that as we sing in triumph that great hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King, that we're singing our song, for we have been born anew in Him. Thank You, Lord Jesus. Amen.